Okay, good morning to each one of you. Thank you for coming on a special Sunday. Today's our communion Sunday, so um, we didn't have our prayer time together, but hopefully we'll remember the communion that we have in Christ as we take our communion time. Okay, let's see if we can catch up on some of our activities here. Let's see here. Thank you. Oh, there it goes. Okay, there's our pictures. So we have a lot of pictures. Most of these pictures are about food. And the bottom right is uh, Abby's birthday party. Uh, and the rise people had a uh, nice birthday gathering for her. On the far right corner, Diana and Celine did a wrap, which Abby enjoyed a whole lot. I don't know what the wrap was about, but it was very good. And then uh, Julie hosted some of the women at our home. They're getting ready for a special celebration, so the women got together for dinner. And then next is an interesting picture. That is Jackie in Beirut. Uh, Jackie, as you know, was one of the people doing the short-term missions. Uh, she's in seminary now, but she took this summer, or some of the time this summer, to, to minister uh, in Lebanon. Up above that is cell group A. Uh, Julie again organized a group to go to some food trucks, cell group A. And then last Sunday, I, if you were here, you had a wonderful picnic. Jimmy and Diane organized us. Many of you guys cooked, many of you guys cleaned and set up. Thank you for all your work. Uh, for Memorial Day uh, picnic. Okay, last year, not food, that Zion card is actually interesting. The seniors who graduate from ACF have a tradition of going on a trip together, and they all went to Zion this year, and they sent Julie and I in a, a postcard. I'm just thankful to see um, the friendships formed there, the fellowship built there, and I pray that that's a lifelong fellowship that a lot of the ACFers and you guys will join in your fellowship groups and continuing on for the rest of their life. And then we have a graduation of Priscilla, uh, she finished her undergrad, um, and I think Tim and Judy got a chance to spend time with them up in Boston. So a lot of good things happening to our church, and it always involves food in some way or another, so I'm very thankful for that as well. Okay, so if you have your journals or your Bibles, we're going to go back to Genesis. I'm going to review a little bit, uh, just briefly, what Joseph had done. This is all the way back in Genesis 37. Back in 37, we're introduced to Joseph and his brothers. And you remember very quickly, he goes from a place of favor to a place where he is thrown in slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house. He's thrown in jail. And after jail, he, he's there for a long time until the uh, cupbearer remembers him. He rises up in Pharaoh's court. And then he basically is going through a great time of prosperity uh, during that time. Seven years of um, feast. There's lots of food. There's plenty to harvest. And then the hard times hit. But what's interesting with the hard times, the seven years of famine, we see that by that, he's reunited with his family. In the last couple chapters, we've been going over how Joseph is reunited with his family and all the uh, lessons that we're learning, Pastor Hans, and bringing through some very interesting things about the family. And last time I spoke to you, I, I talked to you about, when we talk about family, we're talking about our physical family, but we're talking about an eternal family as well one that we'll never be separated from, one where our family will always be together. Here in this room, you who are covered by the blood of Christ, we're going to be together forever. That's our forever family. Irene often says that. So that was where we left off in 46 last time I spoke to you. But now we're going to jump all the way to 48. So in 48, we're going to cover a few things today. One is Jacob's testimony. He's basically on his deathbed. This is his last few things we're going to hear from Jacob. Um, this chapter 49, he gives all the blessings to uh, his sons. And then we're going to talk about the boys, uh, specifically Manasseh and Ephraim, which are uh, Joseph's boys. 
And then we're going to see something very interesting. Finally, we get to see a good side of Jacob. When I have spoken about Jacob in the past, I have, he's very low on a trust meter, my trust meter that I put up for you guys. And now we get to see Jacob finally shine, finally at a very good place in his life where he's learning to trust the Lord. So these three things we'll try to cover this morning. Okay, why don't I open up with a word of prayer as we begin this part here. Father, we're in your presence this morning. You've promised to meet us here. Thank you for our time of worship, our time of offering, and now a time in your word. As we spend time in your word and we see Jacob finally at the end of his life, trust you as his shepherd, let go of his old ways, let go of his old schemes, things to forward himself, and finally trust in you. May we too learn that same lesson, that you are a good God, a God that will never leave us or forsake us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So what we read together this morning, uh, verses 1, 2, and then here um, in 3, he begins talking to Joseph. Joseph is coming to him because he summoned. It's pretty much his deathbed. And he said, Joseph, you better come. So Joseph comes. And the first thing you see Joseph address, excuse me, Jacob address Joseph with is that God Almighty appeared to me. And then lose. It's a good beginning. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the things that he wants. He says, you know what? I'm going to begin this time with you, Joseph, with God. That's a great place to begin because we see in Jacob's life, as I was alluding to earlier, that he wasn't always centered upon God. But this time, as he comes before Joseph, he is. So I'm just referring you back now to 30, uh, 28, excuse me, when Jacob was a conniver, when Jacob was a schemer, when Jacob was cowardly running away from his brother Esau. Remember what he said there. If you be with me, if you keep me, if you give me bread, if you give me clothing to wear, if I come again to my father's house, you have to do all these things for me. These are my conditions. I'm in control. I'm the boss. I'm going to tell you what to do, God. And we see that if, God, you do those things, then you shall be my God. And that's kind of the Jacob that we remember. And as I was telling you that, that's pretty low on the trust meter on God. He is not trusting God at all. He's in control. He's telling God what to do. He's the one saying, I set the terms. And again, that's not that long ago in chapter 28, but that's the Jacob we kind of remember, that guy. Okay, so if that's where he's at, let's speed up now to chapter 47. In 47, he says also something kind of interesting. When he's standing before Pharaoh and he is recounting his life, Pharaoh's like, okay, tell me how old you are. And his answer him, he is 130 years old at this time, but he says, at 130 years old, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life. And so that's kind of what he said. You know, Pharaoh, my years haven't been that good. It hasn't been that great being me. I don't like what has happened in my life. And you think about Jacob's life. You think about all the things that happened to him. There were a lot of unpleasant things that happened to Jacob. And that's what he says. It's been few, even though it's been 130. And God blessed him a great deal. He says it's unpleasant. So one of the things that we think about for Jacob, the first time we run into him, is that he's running for his life from his brother Esau. He could think, you know what, that Esau, he's a killer. He wanted to kill me. I, I don't know if you tell the backstory of what he did to Esau to make him want to kill him, but that's pretty unpleasant. He never gets to see his mother again. You know, um, Rachel, 
um, Rebecca actually passes away before he comes back, you know, all those years of after running away from Esau. It's, a, it's difficult. He has to run away from home, run from his life. And then he runs into his uncle. And then he's thinking, you know what? I love Rachel. And I'd be glad to work for her seven years. And then his uncle, a better conniver, a better deceiver than Jacob was, says, what? You know what? I'm going to fool you. Puts Leah in his bed. And he could say, that Uncle Laban, he's a conniver. He's a deceiver. You know, he, he's a guy that you can't trust. And we'll go over that in a little bit. But that's another thing that he could have considered unpleasant in his life. And then you think about all of his children, minus Joseph, maybe, maybe minus Benjamin, but the 10 other sons, you're thinking, you know what? They cheated me. They deceived me. They're murderers. They slept with my concubine. Those are terrible sons that I've raised together. And you think about that's unpleasant. Every day I come home, I have these 10 sons I'm surrounded with that I don't like. <laughs> I don't trust them. You know, they're just like Jacob was to Isaac. You know, they, they deceive, and, and I can't trust them. That'd be unpleasant every day to come home to 10 sons you cannot trust. So you can kind of see in 47 how Jacob could say this in front of Pharaoh. But now in 48, it's actually 17 years later. He's 147. So at 130 before Pharaoh, it's been unpleasant. It's been few. At 147, his tune changes. Jacob is actually in a much better place than he was 17 years ago in front of Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to go back just a little bit. I'm going back to 46, but this gives you a mindset of how Jacob was trusting God. And this is God encouraging Jacob to go back down to Egypt. And God spoke to Israel, and it's important. We'll go over it in a minute why God calls him Israel turns in Jacob at certain times. In visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So it's beginning to change. He's beginning to follow the Lord. God is taking him out of his land of Canaan to go to Egypt. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard. But Jacob obeys. Jacob is turning a corner in his life, and he actually goes. And he... Uh, obeys the Lord. And during this time, I say we see Jacob's trust in meter going much, much better. We see that here, he follows the Lord. Lord tells him to go, no complaining, no fussing. He goes, okay, you said it, Lord, I will obey. And he goes, and he goes in obedience to the Lord. So that's a little background of where we're at today. So here we are in 48, what we just read this morning that God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. And he begins this time with God Almighty. And if you read through the blessing all the way into chapter, or excuse me, verse 11. In verse 11, he closes his time with Joseph. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring too. So he begins his time referring to God. He ends his time of blessing with Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim, that God has let me see your children as well. It's a very good change for Jacob, beginning and ending with God, remembering what God has done. These 17 years have begun to Jacob as he changed from one perspective to another. Okay, so 
Let's go to our second point. We're talking about the boys now. And this is in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So you think about that. Why is he claiming Joseph's sons as his own? He already has 12 of his own sons, but now he says, Manasseh, Ephraim, they're mine. And I want you to think about for a minute because um, Ephraim and Manasseh have never been to Canaan. They have no idea what it's like or what God has done in Luz and at Bethel and all these other places. They've only known Egypt. And remember their mother. Who's their mother? Aseneth, the daughter of the high priestess. I mean, these kids only know the splendor of Egypt. These kids only know what it likes to be like Pharaoh's favorite person is probably Joseph and to be the son of Joseph. I mean, they had a very privileged life. They had a great life. And I think the splendors of Egypt, the privilege in Egypt would be very different than what Jacob could offer them. Jacob is a farmer. He's a shepherder. He doesn't have a whole lot. But he's saying, you know what? These two guys, Ephraim and Manasseh, are mine. And you have to think about what he's doing there because he's basically claiming them as part of his inheritance. You know, all the other sons, Joseph, after Manasseh and Ephraim are going to be yours. But Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, equal to Reuben and Simeon. Okay, so you think about that. He's basically making them part of his inheritance. You know what? Everything that all my sons get, all my 12 sons, including you, Joseph, you're going to get. So let's fast forward a little bit to the time of division in the land, and you say every son gets a portion except Levi, right? So Levi doesn't get one, but still there's 12 portions. How are there 12 portions when Levi doesn't get a portion is that Joseph's sons, or Joseph should have gotten one portion, which would have been fair. But at this time, Joseph gets two portions. He gets a portion for Manasseh, and he also gets a portion for Ephraim. So in fact, Joseph here is getting a double portion. Who gets a double portion usually? The firstborn. So what is he doing here? Joseph is not the firstborn. Joseph is pretty far. I, I'm sorry, I can't raise. Is he number 11? I think. I think he's number 11, right? So how does number 11 get the double portion? Well, here it is, is that Jacob's saying, you know what? I'm going to give a portion to Manasseh. I'm going to give a portion to Ephraim. So he gets the double portion. In some ways, he's elevated. Now, we know the godly line obviously comes through Judah. So in that way, um, Judah is the one that the blessing for all the earth. But as far as inheritance goes, Jacob is saying, your boys are going to get the double portion. You are allotted that special portion. So it's kind of interesting what Jacob is doing here, giving Manasseh and Ephraim the double portion. Okay? Let's look a little bit more about the boys here. As for me, I came from Padan to my sorrow. Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And now you think, this is an old guy. He's 147-year-old, and here he is. We're trying to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, and here he goes off talking about Rachel. Like, what are you talking about? You're, you're losing track. You're, you're kind of <laughs> just wandering here, and you're, you're going off. But if you follow Pastor Hans' teaching to us, what he says, when there's something in a passage that doesn't quite make sense, you better figure out what that is. Like when, you, when the Bible goes, hey, why is this included? Just don't jump over it and skip it and say, that's not relevant. 
God's word is always relevant. So what is he trying to teach us here? He is talking about Rachel. He's talking about um, this place called Ephrath, a place of Bethlehem. And it's interesting because we went over this a little bit about how much Jacob loved Rachel, right? And if you remember that sermon from Pastor Hans, he said, you know, a normal time to work for that would be about one year. If you work one year, that was like equal to the amount that you would typically put for uh, a payment for a wife. Initially, he says, you know what? I'll work seven. I'll do seven years, no problem. And it went by like a blink, ends up sleeping with Leah, and now he has to work seven more. And if you read scripture carefully, he said, it went by like a moment for Jacob. He loved Rachel so much. Those 14 years, blink of an eye, didn't even bother him at all. He had a great love for Rachel. It was deep and it was special. And even at the end of his life at 147, he still recollects how important Rachel in his, uh, in his life. And I think when he looked at Joseph, when he looked at Benjamin, the, the sons of Rachel, he'd say, wow, I remember Rachel, the love of my life, the love of my youth, someone who I'm very passionate about, someone that I would give my life to. And it's just so easy for me to love her and to love you, Joseph, and to love Benjamin. He had a special love for Joseph and Benjamin. But as he comes at the end of his life, it's very special, I think, that he remembers how much he loved his wife. That was a very special thing. And, and he remembers the very place where she's buried. She's buried at Ephrath or Bethlehem. And Bethlehem um, or Ephrath in the old times was, it's the same place. It's the same name. Ephrath means like seed of a woman. Bethlehem, you guys remember what that means? Bethlehem? House of bread. It's an amazing place. You guys all know what happened in Bethlehem. That the place where Rachel's born, the passion of his life, the desire of his life, where I gave so much of my life to, is so much of my life was geared toward Rachel and living for her and providing for her, is now a place where we can always look back and think about the passion of our life, where Christ was born. Those are intimately linked together. When we see God doing so much in this part of the world, that every place, every um, city that these guys traveled through, whether it's Bethel or Shechem or Jerusalem or even Hebron, God has a special thing happening there. And if you know your Bibles well, you understand this passion and desire, the love of his life is going to be forever associated with our Lord and Messiah, Christ. So there's interesting there, as you see um, something very important happening there. So one of the things I don't want us to forget is that the passions in our life, the things that God has given to us for us to love, for us to um, give our lives to, are important, and we should not forget that. Um, I don't think Jacob is just going off trail here. He's saying, you know what, there's something that drove me. There's something very important to me. There's something that I can't forget at the end of my life. And this pleasant and beautiful relationship is one of those things that we should cherish. It was interesting. Um, the Memorial Day weekend, we, we had that picnic, but also on that Memorial Day weekend, there was a funeral or a memorial service here at PCC, and her name was Tong Ying. Tong Ying um, was a member here at PCC, and she fought a long battle with cancer, and then she just passed away just a few weeks ago in the memorials that weekend. So uh, they're from the Chinese service, and they're having a service in Chinese. And Julie and I are just sitting there uh, going through everything because a lot of it was in Chinese. And finally, her husband, Chi Ming, gets up 
and he starts talking about his wife in a eulogy. And it was all in Chinese, no translation. And I was thinking, okay, so like five minutes went by, 10 minutes went by, 15 minutes, and people are laughing, and people are kind of crying through this whole thing. I'm like, wow, this is an incredible thing. What? So I had to bring Elder Paul and say, Paul, what was that testimony that he was sharing with about his wife? And it turned out that they knew each other in high school, but they weren't allowed to date in high school. But they met each other again in college. They were able to date. And he didn't give me all the details, but a lot of twists and turns as their relationship unfolded. And you could see in Chi Ming's face as he was sharing about his wife, there was laughter, there was tears, and there's just a part of his heart that he couldn't let go. I mean, it was just a sad, sad time for him that um, his wife went ahead of him to the Lord. But what was interesting to me is that it was passionate and it was beautiful at the same time. Obviously, death is not something we'd want to encounter, but the part that I think Julie and I took away was this lifelong love, that it was important to him and it was intimate to him. And it was something that God had given to him and it would not ever be forgotten. It will ever be a part of him. And when I talk about here about the boys or the girls, there's a sense here that when God gives us that pleasant, beautiful relationship, that is something to be cherished. Something that obviously is a relationship between us and the Lord. When we have that wonderful relationship here on earth, it should be an indicator of how much the Lord loves us. And so we make the transition, all of us may not be married, but all of us in the Lord have that idea of how much the Lord loves us, how pleasant and how beautiful that relationship is with the Lord. It's indicated between a husband and wife, but most intimately intimated between Christ and us. So I don't think Jacob goes off trail here. He's just uh, reminding us how much he loved his wife and how much the Lord loves us. Okay, talk about the boys of war. Now we're switching a little more to Jacob again. Sometimes this guy um, is called Jacob. Sometimes this guy is called Israel. And every time in scripture that he's called Israel, it's always a good thing. When you see him called Israel, he's doing something faithful. He's acting in obedience. He's doing something good. Sometimes he's called Jacob and he's doing a good thing. But many times when he's called Jacob, he's not doing a good thing. So scripture kind of flips and flops back and forth between Jacob and Israel. In this chapter, if you look at verse 2, it's interesting. He says, Israel summoned his strength. You look at verse 8, Israel summoned his strength. In verse 11, and Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. Behold, God has let me see your offspring also. And then verse 14, and Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. So Jacob, the schemer, the cowardly one, the one who's a conniver, and then we have Israel, the one who is on a faithful journey with his Lord, who takes steps of obedience, who says, I will follow God wherever he leads me. And that's probably like all of us. All of us probably have some of us in our heart as Jacob, and some of the times we're Israel. God has already told us that if we are covered by the blood of Christ, it's inevitable we'll be like Christ. But there's this battle going on between Jacob and Israel and our old self and our new self as we fight that battle, reminded that Jacob also fought that battle. Okay, our last point, we're on number three now. Jacob at his best. So finally, at the end of his life, we see Jacob do some really good things. Uh, we didn't have a chance to read this morning. If you turn to verse 15, you'll see where we're at here. 15 says, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who's been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, 
the angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless the voice and let them, uh, let my name be carried on. The name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here it is. Finally, we get the blessing to the boys. Um, my name will be carried on through these boys, through Ephraim and Manasseh. They're going to be carried on like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Manasseh and Ephraim. And they're going to grow into a multitude all over the earth. So Jacob is finally getting to the blessing of the boys. And this is what uh, Joseph brought them to do. This is the end of your life. This is kind of the end here. He brings his boys in order to get this blessing, and they finally get it. But if you kind of look at the picture here, you think, okay, wait, his hands are heading in the wrong direction here. Uh, Joseph puts the boys right in front of Jacob in a correct way. He would have put Manasseh on his right hand. He would have put Ephraim on his left hand, the older and the younger. All Jacob has to do is reach out his hands in the older and the, less, and the lesser. But Jacob does something very unusual here. He crosses his hands, so his right hand is now going to Ephraim, and his left hand is now on Manasseh. Thinking, that's kind of strange. What is going on there? And as he crosses his hand, you'll see in 17, Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head on the older boy. And then Joseph says to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn, put your right hand on his head. You know, Jacob, you're a little bit old now. Your eyes are kind of dim. You can't really see well. I put the boys in the right order. You're messing up. So Joseph is trying to uncross his hands and try to make it right. Look, I have it right. Just stick your hands out and you'll be okay. Right? But Jacob says, no, no, no. Okay. But Jacob, his father, refuses and says, I know, son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Now that must ring a bell in your head, because this is what happened to his father, Isaac. Do you remember that? Isaac was given that prediction or that prophecy that the younger will be greater than the older, right? Um, Jacob is going to be greater than Esau. But Isaac, he didn't want that. Isaac wanted Esau, the hunter, the strong, the manly guy, to be number one. And now Jacob is the one that actually gets all the blessing. It's the same thing happening again. And at this time, instead of Jacob fighting the Lord, instead of Jacob standing up saying, no, 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 I'm going to do it my way, Jacob says, I know, I know. I know what I'm doing here. He's going to be great. Nevertheless, the younger brother shall be greater than the older one. So God must have informed Jacob somehow. We don't see this really clearly in scripture, but somehow Jacob knew. Jacob knew that his scheming days are over. He knew that his finest hour is now here. He has to trust in God in a way that he's never done really in his life before. That when God told him, Ephraim shall be greater than Manasseh. No fight, no muss. You know what? I'm just going to obey. I'm just going to cross my hands, and Ephraim will get the double blessing, not Manasseh. He remembers the great grief from his own life. When I tried to take it away from Esau, when I dressed up like Esau, when I pretended to be Esau, it was terrible for me. I had to run away from home. I had to run for my life. It destroyed my family. I had a broken relationship with Esau all the way into the point where I came back, and I don't think they were ever truly reconciled. 
Jacob at his end of his life says, my running days are over. I will trust God that your ways are better than my ways, and I'll submit to you. And so here at the end of his life, I'm considering his finest hour. Finally, at the end of his life, he can trust God and say, you are the one that I will follow through on your ways. Now, this is a pattern in scripture. You guys know your scripture well. You know, this happened um, with his grandfather, with Abraham. Abraham says, you know what, God, I can't wait anymore. I better just sleep with my handservant and have a baby named Ishmael. That's better than waiting for you. And obviously God said, no, not Ishmael. You're going to have your own son and you're going to have um, Isaac. That's God's way. And we just talked here about Esau and Jacob, how Jacob cannot wait. You know, I can't wait for God's ways to unfold. I'm going to step into the tent. I'll cook the food. I'll deceive my father. And we know, no, 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 that's not the way God wanted to do it. Let me talk about um, Jacob. Jacob kind of favored Joseph. And he gave him that jacket. He elevated him to like a manager. And then his brothers say, no, 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 uh, we're not submitting. You remember that dream that Joseph had? Like, I'm not submitting. My sheaf is never going to bow down. The sun and moon are never going to bow down to Joseph. And they throw him in slavery. But much to dismay, many years later, they're the ones bowing down to Joseph. Even though that's not what they wanted to do. And then we talk about Moses. Moses is not the oldest one. Actually, his brother Aaron is older. He's the good speaker. I, I, I stutter. I can't really go in front of Pharaoh. God said, no, no, no. I'm not using Aaron. I'm going to use you. You go in front of Pharaoh. That's not the way that we would have chosen it, but this way God's way is. And then we think about King David. Of all the sons of Jesse, the youngest one, the guy out in the field, the guy doesn't even get called in. When everyone's, you know, Samuel's looking through all the boys, David's not even called in. These are the strong guys. These are the ones that you want to choose from. God said, no, 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 I'm taking David. David's my guy. So what we're looking at as we learn about our Lord and we learn the Lord's ways, it might not be what we choose. It's not what we think is best. It doesn't make the most sense all the time. It's not the smartest and the brightest and the richest. It's often the foolish. It's often the weak. It's often the broken. Matter of fact, it almost has to be broken for God to use it. And when you take those broken pieces and you submit to them, God does incredible things. Jacob has finally learned this at the end of his life that I don't have to grab it. I don't have to scheme. I don't have to do it all myself. I'm submitting to the Lord. And look what he says here at the last verse here in 16. The God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Uh, you know, I, I don't quite see that. I don't remember God being a shepherd. I mean, Jacob was the one running and, and scheming and conniving and doing things. But when he looks back, he goes, you know what? God has been my shepherd through this brokenness, through this deceiving, through all this time of heartbreak and failure and the things I've done on my own. God has been my shepherd. And, and then it, it changes a little bit. It's not how good we are. It's not how much I've done. It's not how many times I made the right decision. It's not so much about me and everything I've done. It's about God. It's about God being my shepherd. It's about God pulling me along. God doing the right thing when I mess up. And that's the perspective that I think all of us need to have, that Jacob has here on his deathbed. He finally figures out, oh yeah, God's been my shepherd. How much better for all of us to learn that early, learn that now, that God is our shepherd. And then perspective becomes... And the center of the universe is not us and how we're doing and what we're doing. 
and the center is really where it belongs on Jacob, then we get it right. Oh, excuse me, on God. Jacob gets it right. Here at the end of his life, the Lord God has been my shepherd all along. That's a great perspective. And what I'm considering to be Jacob's finest hour. So here at the end of life, Jacob crosses his hand, does the most finest thing and says, I will obey you, Lord. The first time we really see Jacob just do it. I just obey. Whatever you told me, Lord, I just obey. And he does it in a way that uh, leaves a wonderful legacy for us. So I thought about this in my life, and I thought, okay, that is Jacob on his deathbed. My father, when he, um, the last 10 years of his life, he was um, paralyzed. He had a stroke, and he couldn't get out of bed. So basically on his bed for 10 years. And um, I'd go and sit in there different times, and, and toward the very end of the 10 years, um, he calls, I was just sitting there, and we are just talking about different things, and I think, okay, he, he called me in because I said, hey, Gordon, I really want to talk to you. I really want to say something special. And I thought about all the things that my father could talk to me about. I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be good because I know there's not going to be a lot of time my father and I have left. He goes, okay, come closer. And I said, okay, so I can look closer. He goes, okay, dad, yeah, what is it? He goes, come closer. Go, okay, okay, so I'm going to look closer. I'm getting closer to my dad, and I'm really close to my dad. We're like really close to each other. And he looks at me and he goes, Gordon, I have something important to tell you. He said, okay, this, this has got to be good. I, I, I got I to gotta really listen. I can't. I can't mess this up. I got to hear what he has to say. And so really close. And he leans in you very close. He goes, Gordon, trust in God. Okay, that's good, Dad. Okay, what else? What else is coming here, Dad? I'm ready. I mean, you know so much about dentistry. You know so much about the market. You know so much about gold. You know all these things. You know, what are you going to do with mom? Take care of it. And, and he just said, that was it. Trust in God. And then he just sat back. And I'm like, okay, that, that's it. And, and I never really had that intimacy with him again until he passes on. And that's what he left me with. And that's what I'm reminded when I think of my father. I think at the very end of his life, what is the most important thing that my father can instill in me? What's the most important thing that he could tell me? It wasn't about the market. It wasn't about gold. It wasn't about, you know, the dental office. It was about trust in God. Very, very simple things, right? We see that in our money, just, you know, in God we trust. And... I'm wondering how long it took dad to learn that. You know, his whole life, he was 87, I think, when he passed. And in his whole life, he, he learned that. That was when he went and stoned me. And that's basically what we see here, how God has done that to Jacob at the very end of his life. It's finest hour. I'm going to trust in God. And that's what we need to learn today. Okay, let's close in, in a word of prayer. Father, we see Jacob at the very end of his life referred to you as the God who's been his shepherd all his life, even to this day. And I find in my own heart, Lord, how slow I am to trust you as my shepherd, even to this day. How we're more like Jacob and less like Israel. As we look and see into Jacob's life, may we learn, may we obey. May we follow you the way that Christ did, our true shepherd. In our lives, Lord, may we trust you and know that you are good. Thank you for the person of Christ who leads us day by day, who is our true shepherd, and to our home with you.
And we look forward to that day when we're with you. As we come to your table and look forward to reestablishing and remembering how much you've done with your body broken, your blood being shed. May we know you're the God that we can follow all of our days. Pray these things in your name. Amen.